welcome to Tales, Tunes, and Tomfoolery, starring Jerry Springer with Gene Galvin and me, I am Maria Corelli. We are recorded live in front of a brilliant studio audience here in Folk School Coffee Parlor of Ludlow, Kentucky. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, it is Jerry Springer! Thank you. Thank you. You know, I, I was... Uh, thinking the other day, you and I were talking, Jerry, at uh, dinner a few weeks yeah. ago. Hey, you and I why are, wasn't I invited? Well, I mean, <laughs> it's a fair question. Yeah. Because um, let me tell you, you it have, was, hey. You might you as well have Gene didn't pay either. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> have you been to Otto's, Maria, and Covington? You guys, I serve there. <laughs> are you serious? Maria, we were there. Oh, hey, Maria. So- we were there Saturday night. I know. Okay, this is so funny because my coworkers were like, "You guys will never believe I who came that in." You worked there. And he, they're like, "You'll never believe who came in." And and uh, I was like, "Who?" And they're like, "Jerry Springer." I was like, "That's my friend." And they're like, "Yeah, right, Maria." <laughs> <laughs> well, wait, not your friend. I was gonna save it for the podcast. I was like, I gotta oh. tell them that. Did oh. you tell them that you're like the co-host of the podcast? Yeah, yeah. I think that they're just like. They don't even like. <laughs> they're just very confused by it. They're like, "He's a so you're on the Jerry Springer show." I'm like, "No, no, 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 no. it's a podcast." <laughs> <laughs> well, we're it was awesome. That place it, is it so really good. Is. The food so, what did you so guys get good. to eat? I had salmon. What'd you do? Nice. Yeah, it was twenty three ninety five. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> oh yeah, I said I said to Bonnie, oh, you know, man. Get the most expensive. Yeah. So I'm not picking up this jack. <laughs> she, she got the lobster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it was excellent. So what did you was, get? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> Maria, no, I can tell I you, remember Maria. when we left, it beef was tips. It was, wasn't like there's a beef tips salad. Oh, right, oh. right. Oh, yes, the, the bl- black and blue. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> that, that, it was delicious. So good. They cooked that, had, they cooked uh, that beef m- for a while. Muscles or uh, is there a... I don't know. I forget. <laughs> it was good. It was good. Yeah. So anyway, while we're having dinner, uh, Jerry was telling me, and I, I could relate, because I have a grandson, a number of grandkids, but one of his name's Michael. And he gets notes in school about being a smartass, a punk. Hmm. You know, I mean, he's, yeah. he's trying to be the class clown. Hmm. Yeah. So Jerry's explaining that his grandson got a note trying to be funny, yeah. being the class clown, right? Yes. Yes. And so... Yeah. I was thinking, well, wait a minute, where do they get this? And then I remembered, <laughs> I, I'm thinking of something I did and something that you did, Jerry, but when yeah. I, about the same year, back in our early stages of our yes. getting into our stuff, you know, becoming adults. And so I was in a program called VISTA, oh, Volunteers right. in Service to America. And I served on the Native American Reservation, Northern Minnesota. And in the training, I may have mentioned a version of this on the show, in a previous show, but I was being trained, and I was at a camp out in the woods of northern Wisconsin with all my cohorts who were going to then be assigned to reservations all over America, a six-week training program. And they brought in Native American leaders, chiefs from tribes, and they taught us all kinds of stuff. So they did one session toward the end in which they brought in a ranger, like a forest ranger. His job was to teach us some minimal survival skills in case somebody got hurt because we were going to very rural areas. So he goes through this whole morning of training. And when he got done, we're all sitting around all these picnic tables inside this big uh, dining lodge. And I said, 
can I ask a question? He was like, yeah, I'm hoping you guys have some questions. And I said, well, if I'm on an assignment and I have my, we always got paired with two people and I'm with my partner and we're working using chainsaws. He says, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. And I said, and I got that thing fired up and I, and my partner nicks his leg with the chainsaw. He's like, oh, dude, yeah. I mean, I can tell you what to do about that. And I said, is there something that I can take that's in a first aid kit to keep from puking all over myself? (laughs) (laughs) The people in the training, all my cohorts, went freaking crazy. They loved it. They thought, that. oh, that's so funny. So the psychologist that was in the training, on the training staff, walked over to me after the session and said, uh, can we have breakfast on Sunday? And she always had a notebook. And she was always writing in this goddamn notebook stuff, you know. And she'd look at you and then she'd write some notes. <laughs> we had breakfast. She took out that notebook. While you were having breakfast. And she said, uh, Jean, uh, <laughs> do you think it's your role as a VISTA volunteer, like a Peace Corps volunteer, to entertain And I, I went to work, Maria. I, I thought, Gene, you're a bullshitter. You got to get your way out of this, or they're going to send you home. That's what they were doing. They would send people home. They Mm -hmm. sent some people home. So I gave an answer that saved my butt. But I thought, I'm a smartass. I'm, I'm just a smartass. And then I thought of you. Well, well, why? Why would? Oh, really? Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You go into the United States Army. Yeah. You're in a JAG unit, and yeah. you're in basic training? Yes. And you had a drill sergeant? Yes. Yeah, sergeant well. Sergeant Hunt. Yeah, well, he, okay. yeah. Yeah, he was, oh, the drill sergeants, you know, with the smoky bear hats and everything. Uh-huh. They really, I mean, they just, they're horrible to you. But that's to get you ready for the Army. So they, anyway, they come to me, because I'm the oldest one in the company, uh, because everyone was 18 and I was already 24, 25. Hmm. And uh, so they said, and I was the only one that had a, an extended education. In other words, the rest were high school grads and I had already finished law school or whatever. So they said, okay, you Einstein, you, they called me Einstein. <laughs> you, uh, you're going you're gonna to host the uh, Christmas show. For the company. Oh, that's a bad decision. <laughs> bad decision. First of all, bad they picked decision. the one Jewish guy in the company. That <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. the host the company. That's a bad decision. Okay. So, you know, I found some guys that played the guitar, some guys with, you know, one guy tap dance, whatever. You know, just, so we put together a show. Now I get up there to start the show and, you know, you got the whole company there. That's 250 guys in a company. Officers too, I see. Yeah, and the officers and the sergeants, the drill sergeants, everything. So I get up there, you know, give a little warm up and say, hey, it's great to be here. Happy holidays to everyone. We got a great show. Jerry uh, Springer. Yeah. <laughs> Jerry Springer show. Yeah. And, but of course, Army. I was 25. That No one, I had not been in show business yet or anything. You know, I was just a local lawyer. In fact, I was getting ready to, oh, I was. I was a candidate for Congress, but I didn't tell them because I was running as an anti-war candidate. That's right. But I, yeah, but I didn't tell them. Anyway, when I got up there, this was in 1970. Well, actually, December of 69, 50 years ago. And so I got up there, and I said, we got great acts here. In fact, later on, uh, we're going to have a, one of the drill sergeants come up here and do an impersonation of a human being. 
Well, there it is. Uh, well, the guys in the company loved it. The next day, <laughs> the next morning, you know, you had Reveille always at uh, five o'clock in the morning. So, you know, the bugle sounds. Roll out of bed. It just seemed horrible, but because it was, this turned out to be four o'clock in the morning, and it's freezing in December. I mean, it was honestly, it was below zero. And they lined 250 of us up in the line, as we do every morning. And then the drill sergeant, Sergeant Hunt, starts at the end of the line. And he goes up to everyone in line, the 250 guys. He's, and he'd look you right in the eye and he'd say, Private such and such. And, you know, they'd see your name on the thing. Are you a dickhead? <laughs> and the guy would say, no. And he'd move on to the next one. Are you a dickhead? No. Well, they go through about 30 of them. And I'm, now they come to me, and I figure I know the drill. Are you a dickhead? I said, no, sir. But he doesn't move. He says, I said, are you a dickhead? I said, no. He says, I said, are you a dickhead? And then I finally said, yes, sir. <laughs> you damn right you are. Now you go down and you give me 100 push-ups. And you're going to do an impersonation of a soldier. <laughs> there it is. And nobody was allowed to leave until I did 100 push-ups. Oh, no. Oh, well, everyone and that's, was ticked off. And me. that's, that's how... I, it took me forever to make 100. So <laughs> we wonder why Richard and Michael are a couple of smart asses. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Jerry, yeah. let me ask you a more <clears throat> yeah, serious a question. Way. All these Democratic Party <clears throat> debates... Yeah. They've had a lot of them, and we're not done yet. Uh, what do you think of that? Too many? Not enough? Right amount? What do you think? I don't like them. Uh, let me explain why I don't like them. Uh, in the media world, ever since John Kennedy in 1960 uh, debated Richard Nixon, uh, the first televised presidential debate, um, we found out, and they were the whole country watched. It was amazing because we didn't have you know, a uh, bunch of television stations. You only had three. And literally, the virtually the whole nation at that time, the whole voting age public and even other people watched it. This was an event bigger than the Super Bowl. They didn't have Super Bowl then, but even bigger than the Super Bowl is now. And John Kennedy was phenomenal on television. Uh, and that was the first one. And... We've had these televised debates ever since. The problem I have with these televised debates is they can't possibly tell you who would be a good president. Now, when T initially when they had debates before television, you know, Lincoln-Douglas debates, they were substantive. You know, people would come and each would get to debate, you know, talk for an hour, an hour and a half, then the other guy would come up. I mean, it was, and they would travel around the country giving debates, and people really paid attention. They were substantive. But once it hit television, they had an incredible impact. But what they have an incredible impact on is what kind of candidate they are, who could possibly be elected, how glib they are, 
What the debate does is answer a question for voters in the, that voters might have in their mind. So for, in terms of who they might vote for. So when John Kennedy debated Richard Nixon, what came across in that televised debate was that John Kennedy, oh my gosh, he's young, but he's smart and he's mature enough to handle the job. He could stand up to Nixon, who had been the vice president, etc. Then when Ford, President Ford, debated Jimmy Carter, Ford blew it when he said in the debate with a real gaffe saying that Hungary was not under the influence of the Soviet Union, and that was a tremendous gaffe, and many people think that's what ultimately cost him the election. When Reagan, the candidate, debated President Jimmy Carter in 1980, everyone thought uh, before the debate they were worried that they knew they didn't like Jimmy Carter. The polls had shown that because of all the problems, the hostages being helped and the uh, Arab oil embargo. The country was in tough shape. Carter would probably lose the election, except they didn't know whether they could vote for Reagan because Reagan was this B-movie star who, who had been in bedtime for Bonzo. Uh, he had hosted the General Electric Theater, but nobody thought he was qualified to be president of the United States. And they thought because he was so right-wing and he was so anti-Soviet, they thought Reagan could be dangerous with his finger on the button, on the nuclear button. Back then, we were really scared about nuclear war. And so that then they had the debate, and Reagan didn't come across as a crazy man. He came across as your uncle. Well, there you go again, Jimmy. You know, he was just a, he seemed like a really nice, reasonable guy. And literally, by the next day, Reagan, who was well behind in the polls, all of a sudden jumped ahead of Carter and won very substantially. So what we have seen with these televised presidential debates is that they have incredible influence on how people vote. So why don't I like these debates? I mean, as a political groupie, you know, I love this stuff in terms of its interest. It's fun. But what I don't like about them is they have nothing to do with what you need to be as a president. And I'll give you examples. The presidential debates turn out to be quips. You, you get to answer for one minute or a minute and 30 seconds. And all the consultants prepare the candidates for what their quip will be when a certain question is inevitably going to come up. So basically what we're really voting on or, or, or making our opinions on based on these candidates is basically which consultants came up with the best quip. So that's the first thing. Secondly, if you think about it, there is no issue that the President of the United States ever has to deal with that has to be answered in a minute. Even missiles coming over, you have more than a minute to make a decision whether you're going to strike back or whatever. There is no decision that has to be made up in a minute. And there is no decision that a president makes that you would want that president to make without consulting with advisors, experts, getting research done. In other words, and if you were in the televised debate and you get a question, 
if you as the candidate said, you know what, if you could give me some time to talk to my advisors and to come up with a good answer for you, I will, you'd be laughed off the stage and that would be the end of your campaign. So the skill that you have to have as a president is the one skill that is not tolerated in a debate. Finally, questions are asked in a vacuum. What I mean by that is any time they ask a question, which drives me crazy, it's just on that issue. Where do you stand on abortion? Where do you stand, stand on gun legislation? And so you get that answer. And virtually most of them, particularly if it's within the same political party, come up with the same answer. Everyone's for health care. Everyone's for sensible gun legislation, let's say in the Democratic Party, and stuff like that. Well, so what have you learned? When you're president, you don't get a question in isolation. What you really get are your face with two bills. One bill is restrictions on gun ownership. The other question you get is whether you're going to have Medicare for all. Now, if in order to get your vote for Medicare for all, for example, the senator whose vote you need says, I'll vote for your Medicare for all, but you got to come with me on no gun legislation. Whoa. Now what do you do? So the question that ought to be asked, if you had to trade your vote on gun control for a vote on health care, what would you do? That is a real-life problem that presidents have to deal with. If your vote on what we do with Ukraine and Russia has to be traded for your legislation or your policy— on what we do about immigration, what are you going to do? That gives the voter the idea of what this president is ultimately going to do. Because we all know, no matter who gets to be president through all the elections of our lifetime, when they're in office, they don't do everything they promise to do. Not because they're bad people, but because the reality of passing legislation and getting policies through is getting the votes to do it. And to get the votes to do it, you have to set what your priorities are. And if politicians, if people running for president would say, this is the order of my priorities, then you have a better idea of who to vote for. That's what we don't get in our televised presidential debates. What we get is who might make a great candidate. What we don't get is who might make a great president. We're going to bring uh, the American Roots Group, Jam Grass Band, back up. Uh, Cincinnati-based musicians um, comprising of Char Bowling, Banjo Bowling, Mark Miller, um, Jeff Rowe, and Sleepy Andy Tracy. Welcome to state. Welcome to the stage again. Highly likely, everybody. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> um, so, Shara, this is a song that you wrote, correct? Yes. Awesome. Will you tell us the name of it? Uh, this song is called Never Left Here. 
Awesome. We just recently made a video for this song. Uh, it'll be coming out soon, and we did it at Loveland Castle. It's pretty awesome. Sweet. <laughs> Where will uh, people be able to um, watch the music video once it comes out? Um, it'll definitely be up on our YouTube and Facebook pages, but we're trying to get a premiere somewhere. Okay. Like a little at a local blog. So nice. TBD. Stay tuned. Cool. All right. You ready? One, two, three, four. Steel traps of memories and caught up in my mind. What if had I could I did?
awesome, you guys. Sounds great. If you guys uh, want to check them out, you can check them out uh, on their social medias. Highly likely, highly likely band.com is coming soon. Um, will you guys take us out on Down by the Riverside and let maybe let Jerry sing a verse? Absolutely. Perhaps. <laughs> you, 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 don't ha- you don't have to. <laughs> We'd love to. <laughs> Know how long it takes to tune a banjo? Uh, it sounds like the first line of a joke. It is. <laughs> how Two punchlines. One is nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> Two is we'll let you know when he figures it out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> banjo jokes. Yeah. We'll let you know when we get there. Yeah. Ready? <clears throat> I'm gonna lay down my heavy load down by the riverside.